0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hey, I'm Claire Bonnyman. And I'm Tahereh Feruzin. And welcome to The Loop. Spring started at the end of March, but it's only kind of just starting to actually feel like spring, I think. And with that warmer weather comes a lot of lovely things. I mean, I really like it because I can go back on my bike. Yes. Yeah. I think I spent a good, like, 20 minutes this week trying to, like, spruce it up so I could avoid paying someone else to do it. Dust it off. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Get some grease on there. A little extra, like, (laughs) lube on the
1: gears, you know? I don't even know if that's the right term, but, you know... (laughs) Rip it down. Make sure it still works, basically.
2: That's good. I'm, I'm at the point where I don't know what coat to wear. Oh. I think it's I don't know what coat to wear season. It
1: is. Because every time you wake up, it'll be different by the end of the day. Yes. And then also just I don't think I know how to dress anymore. Yeah. Because it's not warm. And it's not cold. And it's not cold. And I
2: often end up just wearing kind of my winter coat. And then yeah. people look at me weird like, how cold are you? Well, and like, then it's don't nice you get <laughs> a little steamy too?
1: Like it, it gets kind of
2: hot under there. Which I'm okay with. Because then I'm like, this really feels like summer in my winter coat in the spring. I don't know. It's, See, it's all over the place. I'm the
1: opposite. I go too light on the layers. So I feel a little cold. But I'm like, that's fine. It will get warmer. Yeah. I think also for me, at least spring kind of brings up this idea about renewal, right? And there's a refreshing, there's a restarting. You think of like the buds peeking out of the ground and people emerging from their basements. And that's an idea that I think we're hearing a lot in the news right now, too.
2: Yeah, especially for Indigenous Canadians, the headlines around the papal apology kind of feel like a new chapter. It was last week when Pope Francis said he felt sorrow and shame for the role some members of the Catholic Church played in the residential school system. And over the course of that visit, First Nations, Métis and Inuit delegations held private meetings to illustrate the damage of more than a hundred 50,000 Indigenous children and their communities through that residential school system. Many did not survive, and as we know so far, thousands of burial sites have been discovered at residential school sites across Canada, so while this apology was seen as a potential renewal to the Catholic Church's relationship with Indigenous people in Canada, it remains, uh, you know, the first step of many. Yeah. Kyle Muzika, it was in Rome, reporting for CBC. He's Métis from Treaty 8 and joins us on The Loop to talk about the experience. Hey, Kyle. Hi, Tara. When did you get back?
3: Well, I got back uh, Saturday evening. Uh, I guess on Rome time, it would have been like the next morning. <laughs> it was it's eight, eight hours ahead, so... Uh, I was uh, I was pretty exhausted by the end of it.
2: Yeah. How are you feeling? Any any jet lag?
3: You know, I got I got pretty rocked the next day, but I I took a day off work on on Monday and and, uh, I took the time to recover. And I'm I'm mostly better now. Uh, Still still feeling a little sluggish. But uh, but that's that it'll do that to you, I guess.
2: Have you had a chance to kind of digest what you covered during the visit?
3: You know, I think I was I was so involved um, and and working so hard. I think during the during the week, not not just CBC, but all of the the journalists who were in Rome, uh, tireless, tireless, uh, working long, long hours. Uh, you know, really great job by everybody. You know, I think it, it, I was thinking about it nonstop for for so long. But I, I have reflected a little bit on sort of what it means to have been there. It was such a such a monumental, uh, you know, such a really important moment for, uh, you know, many Indigenous folks in, in Canada, not all of them, but certainly a, a large uh, majority, including, you know, many of uh, my family members who are no longer with us here. Um, this would be a, a really big moment for them as well.
2: And I know, of course, you were there covering it, but how, how did it feel to actually be there? Was it, you know, overwhelming or what were your feelings?
3: Yeah, you know, I, I shared this um, a little bit uh, throughout the week, but, you know, when I went to St. Peter's Square at the Vatican, you know, it's it's, it's an open space, um, but there are, like, columns and, and walls that sort of surround uh, the square. And uh, on top of them, there's these, um, they're like these saints that are carved out of stone that are sort of looking over top of you. And um, I remember the first time I, I got there, I was really um, taken taken aback by the, by the, the immense power and, and, and wealth and, you know, and, and, and symbolism uh, that the Catholic Church sort of holds um, over, you know, those saints are supposed to be symbols of, of hope and of protection. Um, and I, I had just, I, I couldn't help but think about how all these symbols were likely in the schools where, you know, many of these uh, children in Canada were, were harmed. And I had just been thinking a lot about, you know the amount of, of of power and wealth that the that the church has, um, and you know had at, at the time, and especially has today. And not only you know how much sway they had at the time, but how much sway they could have, you know, right now in sort of pushing the conversation forward for a lot of these survivors, who uh, many of whom really need the Catholic Church's help in not only their own healing journey, but but sort of just pushing the conversation forward in general.
2: What did it feel like to have someone with that amount of stature and that amount of power speaking about the Pope? Of course, read that that apology on the last day because I think uh, that took a lot of people by surprise.
3: Yeah, it certainly did. Uh, I think the words "I am very sorry." I think really took people by surprise. I, I think they were sort of anticipating that that the Pope would. Pope Francis would, you know, express sorrow uh, similar to Pope Benedict in 2009, um, but I think those words were really surprising for a lot of people, and I think that acknowledgement really seemed to go uh, quite far for for a lot of the survivors who were in Rome and and, and many folks who were back here in Canada, because it was at, at least the uh, uh, the the bare acknowledgement that. Some members of the Catholic Church did wrong. Now, you know, the Pope was very cerebral in his in his language. Uh, there, you know, and the Pope and you know the Catholic Church on the whole in saying that, you know, kind of using the, the a few bad apples argument. This idea that you know there were some members of the Catholic Church who uh, you know initiated this, and so he did stop short of that, uh, you know, full. Taking responsibility mm-hmm. full um, on behalf of the Catholic Church, but you know, I think those words were were a magnificent step forward. Um, still a long way to go, obviously, but I certainly think it was um, it was powerful. I mean, the the elation that some of the members of of the delegation had in St. Peter's Square after the meeting, you can't I, I could not really put it into words. There was a uh, a round dance in. St. Peter's Square uh, after the meeting, after the the final audience with the Pope, and uh, Chief uh, Willie Littlechild. Uh, he's from Alberta, uh, Erminskin. He he just he was his birthday that day, and he had just turned seventy eight. And he, he needs a walker to to get around for the most part now, but he stood up from his walker and, and joined in the round dance. And it was just such an immensely powerful moment, and one that was really representative of, of the elation that a lot of folks. I think, felt Mm
2: -hmm.
3: at the Vatican that day.
2: I remember seeing, I think, a few journalists had posted that specific moment and just talked about how powerful it was. And I know you said it was hard to describe, but I'm going to get you to try because you witnessed history. How did that
3: feel for you? Um, You know, I think at the time, the moment felt huge. I think it was, you know, we were so involved that I, I don't think we quite recognized it right away while it was happening. But, you know, seeing the the expressions on the, on the faces of the delegation afterwards, who, you know, really recognized this as, a, as a, a really important step forward, I think was when it started to sink in. When we're when we're think, when we're thought, think, thinking about, you know, all of the folks, all the all the children who didn't make it home, and and all of the folks who did, who are still living with and you know many of these traumas you know this is a really really big victory for them it's important to note that this is only one step and that going forward there needs to be a lot more conversation and responsibility taken from the catholic church according to many of the delegates and many of the folks uh, back home here in canada who saw the apology and want more but i mean you you hit the nail on the head it really was witnessing history and something that I don't think I really recognized so much right away, but in seeing the responses from others, it was apparent that uh, that this was a, was, a, was a major victory or a major step forward.
2: Mm-hmm. And you've kind of touched on this, but you know that the Pope had said some members of the Catholic Church, and it wasn't necessarily full you know, what was people's reaction to that? Yes, this was a momentous occasion. Yes, this was an historic occasion. But, you know, there was there is that peace there.
3: Well, I think what was really interesting was that, you know, by by and large, uh, and this, this may be obvious, but, you know, many folks who went to the Vatican felt that this apology was really important to get. You know, I think there was some um, trepidation or sort of uneasy feeling about you know, whether it was important to them personally. But I think everybody on the trip recognized that this was important to many people across the land. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was sort of um, and maybe, again, this is obvious, but a bit, there was a bit of a bubble around, you know, when he did apologize. Pretty much everybody that I saw, at, you know, at the Vatican was really excited about this. And what was what was really, I think, valuable and something that was really refreshing was all the folks back home who were immediately ready to dissect what he said and 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 pointed out that this was something that you know the, the words were the wording was careful and it wasn't exactly what they were seeking out at least not yet. And so I thought it was um a really good mix and and really valuable to have all of those voices because uh, you know I think Although the, the trip to the Vatican was not specifically for the apology, that was one of the main things that people were seeking. Mm-hmm. And so to get the start of one with the hope and, and with the understanding that the Pope would come to Canada, which he has committed to do, to apologize potentially in July here that 's a, that's a success, and it, it was a week that I think was had a lot of ups and downs. There was a lot of things that I think a lot of people didn 't feel like there was a whole lot of movement on you know whether it was the residential school records uh, that the Vatican is supposedly uh, holding. Um, you know they denied that they even had any you know or whether we 're talking about the repatriation of items mm-hmm. um, from the museum again, not a whole lot of movement on. A lot of other things that they asked for so I I think not to say that the trip was for nothing because I think there was still a lot of value in it but I think heading into that final day getting that apology I think was an accomplishment more than anything and and the the delegates deserve a lot of credit for sharing their stories with not only you know the Pope but with everyone with all of us Mm -hmm. Um, it takes immense immense courage I can't thank them enough and I can't praise them enough for, for being so brave.
2: I mean, you were there as a journalist to cover all of this, but of course you have that, that personal connection. This involves you too. So how did the events resonate with you personally?
3: Yeah. Um, you know, my uh, my grandmother, Nolcombe, she, uh, she was Catholic. Um, even though she was sent to a convent, which was a form of a residential school, um, when she was a teenager, um, she never really talked about it at all. But you know, we think that she went for a couple of years. Um, she ran away from it three times. Um, it was not a good situation, but you know, she had a relationship with the Catholic Church all the way up until she died, and so it's something that was a very much part of her life, and, and something that was like in a tertiary form part of mine as well. You know, I'm I'm not religious myself, but in recognizing that. Uh, my grandmother was you know, something that you know I, I really took seriously, and I took with me on this trip. Um, I brought my, you know, one of the things that my grandma left me was uh, uh, a little uh, medicine bundle, and I brought that with me every day. I went to the Vatican, and it was just something that I um, wanted to keep close to my heart, and it was something that I wanted to um, make sure that I, I was thinking about as I was there, you know, I, I I tried to imagine what she would think about this and what she would think about me being there. And, you know, I, I just, uh, I know that, uh, you know, ab- ab- above many things, you know, one of the things that she would want me to do is, is to make sure that I was being respectful of all the elders there who were sharing their stories. And, you know, I was thinking about what she would have thought about this apology and whether it would have mattered to her and I'm honestly not sure. I don't know where she ended up with um, her relationship with the church. Mm. You know, I, I'm not sure where whether she would have used this apology as, as a way to advance her own healing journey, or if it was something that she was so upset about that it uh, wouldn't have mattered to her. I'll never know. But, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, she was somebody who cared about people. Mm. And I think that in recognizing that this has value for some Indigenous people in Canada, I think that would be enough for her to be um, happy to at least know that the Pope acknowledged some of the uh, wrongdoings that they uh, contributed to here in Canada.
1: So spring means going outdoors, yes, but it also means a lot of other things. Uh, You know, like random swings in temperature, snow mold, dust, and my personal favorite, melting dog poo. Uh, Of course, here in Edmonton, we're no stranger to the occasional snowstorm in spring, you know.
2: Yeah, it's a a
1: spring snow. How is spring? I call it a spring
2: snow. But it's not, it's still snow. But it's like a, a heavier... You know, snow, you can use it to make snowballs. You're giving me this weird look and I'm like, it's a real thing. It's a spring snow.
1: (laughs) I will give it to you, but only because I don't know enough about snow. I can't argue this. I think the thing, though, regardless of what happens with snow, is that there are reasons to stay inside in spring, even though everyone's talking about going outdoors. Yeah, like inside is great. Inside is great. I love naps. Naps are awesome, especially when it's like you can crack a window so there's like the fresh air coming in and the spring cleaning. Yes. So you're like scrubbing up inside and like preparing. Why wouldn't you want to be there? Yeah. I like it. The smell of bleach and sunshine.
2: But if you're looking for access to the great outdoors, from the indoors, there's a new series on CBC Gem that started right here in Edmonton and digs into the science and stories behind nature.
0: Like, What would be your best guess to how they get here? I couldn't really tell you because up to now, scientists are still trying to figure out what makes them find their way home. Scientists have been experimenting and experimenting. and Has, has there any been any thought on just like like a magical idea, like is it, could it be magic? No, I don't think so, no way. But nobody knows. Nobody knows, but yeah, I don't think so. I wouldn't. I think it's, I think it could be worth something, perhaps maybe talk to like a psychic to see if they could talk to the birds perhaps.
1: That was just one of the many discoveries made on Frick. I love nature. Uh, it launched its first season on CBC Gem this spring. Showrunner Stephen Robinson and host slash ultimate Boy Scout leader Gordy Lucius join us now on the loop. Hello. Well, hello. I've never heard you described that way, Gordy. That's nice, though. Oh, I'll, it's a I'll nice take touch.
0: It. I never did Boy Scouts. As a child, but I i mean, I like to skip the line. You, know?
1: <laughs> you wear the sash very well in this series, I will say that. He I, likes the fashion. <laughs>
0: he <he's, he's> really <laughs> likes
1: the fashion. Frick, we love fashion. Um, <laughs> but, but to talk about the nature one, Frick, I Love Nature. I mean, this journey started for you guys back in 2017. Where did the initial idea come from?
4: Uh, the idea came when I was driving around Vancouver Island with my partner and we kept stopping And seeing this beautiful nature, and I kept saying, Frick, I love nature. (laughs) And uh, as we continued on our journey and, you know, driving around, I was like, oh, that would be a really interesting title for a show. And, you know, maybe it could be a comedy show, but I'm not funny enough. So who do I know that could, you know, maybe be the host of this comedy nature show? And uh, Gordy and I had met probably like a month earlier, he hosted a screening of one of my other series that came out. And I was like, oh, Gordy's funny. I'm just going to pitch it to him and see what it says. I didn't know him at all. I was just like, he's a funny guy. And uh, that's how Frick I Love
0: Nature started. A week after, we had to film a video to to apply for the StoryHive grant. So it was like barely knowing a person and then filming immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was very fun. Yeah.
2: Well, it's good you guys got along right away. Um yeah. but the show is about science. Do either of you have a background in that area? No. I I mean, I t- <laughs> I took a
4: uh university degree in psychology, but that basically doesn't count. So, uh but I don't have any like bio- bio- biological background. Um, um I'm just really hmm. excited with nature. Gordy, what about you? Do you
0: I, are you I a biologist? A, I got a Uh, 71 and bio 30. Ooh, that's pretty good.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's better than me. (laughs) No (laughs) way.
4: No, but yeah, no, we're both just uh, like really, really excited about nature. The amazing thing is, is that if you're excited about something, there's just, there's so many resources on the internet, whether it's on YouTube or reading articles online or reading books. That if you're you are really excited about a topic, there's there's a lot of ways to learn about it. So, Gordy and I have just been kind of going down that path and have become uh, like pseudo biologists, I guess you could say, in the past four years.
2: Well, the episodes mostly are so- about
4: like like animals having sex and you
2: know, <laughs> animal poop and stuff.
0: But the most interesting thing.
2: Yeah, is, yeah, whatever gets you excited about, about science and nature. I mean, go for it. But I mean, the episodes are so in-depth. I feel like I learned so mm. much. How much research goes into each episode?
4: Oh, boy. oh my God. Yeah, <coughs> so I don't much. know. Like, I, so much research. You know, there's a lot of nature content out there that, um, you know, goes viral on the internet that is actually not sourced at all. And then becomes kind of like part of the public sphere. So, something that we really tried to do with the show was bring in scientists to go over our scripts and, and properly source all of them. But I know I personally read about a dozen books. Um, but then we also had two really fantastic researchers on board. They did a ton of research on their own. Our our frickle of nature research document is ginormous. Wow. Yeah, I just put silly pictures on it. <laughs> yeah, Gordy was comedic relief. <laughs> it was needed.
2: Well, the season launched on CBC Gem. But what is it like to bring the show to the next level production-wise, especially for you, Stephen, um, being more behind the scenes? Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, it was uh, really, really fun and really, really challenging. My favorite part about it was just the process of finding talented people who maybe haven't been given uh, the opportunities that they deserve yet and providing those opportunities to those people. And this is the first time that I've really felt like, you know, the people that Gordy and I bring on board together to the show, we can pay them well and uh, you know be really picky about the people that we bring on so yeah my favorite part about kind of the uh, leveling up with the production is is just like working with other people who are really really talented and, and you can kind of say here's our vision here's like what we're going for and then they can kind of you know go with it and and make it better than than either Gordy and I could on our own.
1: I want to know your favorite fun facts. Like, what's the best thing that you learned while making this season?
0: I enjoy a good poop story. (laughs) And uh, uh, this season we did a little excerpt on the uh, nocturnal dung beetle and how it uses the Milky Way galaxy, the map of the stars, to roll its poo in a straight onward line. And they did a scientific study to see if it actually is looking at the sky and, like, looking at the stars to see if it's actually using it. And they blocked their sensors, and it didn't know where to go. It was rolling poo all over the place. Their poo sphere was all janky. And when they took the hat off, they, they, ha- they continued rolling in a straight line, uh, and, like, they could navigate using the stars how they roll a big ball of poo. It's important. (laughs) It's very important.
2: (laughs) Obviously. They they use the
0: poo for
4: eating and making babies and all that stuff. Poo poo is life. It's
2: extremely important. Poo is life. There are some more serious pointed moments, like you guys talk about climate Mm -hmm. change and pollution in the series, which aren't necessarily funny topics. But how do you walk Mm -hmm. the line between funny and more pointed commentary?
4: Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know if we're like great at it maybe we're good at it, but we just, I think our main thing is trying not to be, come across as preachy and more just like pointing things out in, in either like a dark way or like a direct way. Um, because, yeah, like like there there's a time and place for that direct information about climate change that is like you need to change your behavior and and all this sort of stuff which i think is really important but it it never really fit in our show went during the writing or the editing so um when we were kind of you know putting the show together we found that like these little quips or kind of sentimental moments in the show worked a lot better for
0: communicating that information i think it lies in the subtlety of how we wrote those like Whenever we see something that's yeah too preachy, it just, like, immediately just, like, kind of, like, turns you off, even if it's something you, like, believe in. So, I, like, we always thought, like, having, like, subtle jokes here and there leans you to, like, kind of laugh at it more and then be like, oh, yeah. And, like, it's just kind of like a little, the subtlety of it, of being, like, a small thing and then going on really helps to the effectiveness of the joke. And, like, just to make you think a little bit on what we're trying to say here.
1: And I know that both of you were so much more involved than just in the writing and the hosting and the show running Mm -hmm. and all of those things. Gordy, when we spoke before, actually, you mentioned the props and building them, which is a really fun element of the show. There's all these scenes with these different props and materials. Do you have a favorite thing that you got to build this season?
0: Ooh, um, I guess like first off, it's like this season I we actually got to hire other people as well, <laughs> which was nice. That's how I was still the production designer, so like it's a lot of work to do. Uh yeah, we had an awesome team. I'm trying to think of like the funnest thing that we've had to create. One of the things to this day that still makes me laugh really hard and uh which was one of my ideas was this image of two two drinking birds. Uh, which is like an old classic toy. It was on the City Animals episode, and uh, we talk about two geese, like basically one goose just pecking another goose's head into the ground (laughs) during mating season. And you're like, ah. But we use two drinking birds, uh, and just just the look of them, they look so weirdly human in their eyes, even (laughs) though it's just like a very cheap toy and (laughs) like... Juxtaposed to what we're actually talking about is like so playful. So to this day, i still like laugh at that. This is a cheap little drinking bird toy, and it's uh, you know it's doing something so scary. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Stephen, do you have a favorite?
4: A favorite puppet? Oh man, yeah, <laughs> I love so many of them. One of my favorites was the crocheted uh, hyena <laughs> puppet that. So this is going to require some context. The, the, <laughs> the hi- spotted hyenas, the females have uh, ginormous uh, clitorises that look like penises. And I don't know how much of this I can say on CBC.
0: Just, <laughs> these are just facts. I mean, this it's, is just, on it's, on it's
1: just, it's CBC. Like you have just technically just already said them on CBC. Biology.
4: <laughs> I know. I just, it just, every time I say it, it feels <laughs> like I shouldn't be saying it. But um, yeah, so, so the, these females, they do this. The idea is to blend in with the males because this is a matriarchal society and the young females tend to get picked on a lot more than the young males because they're the ones who are potentially in power. So the young females have evolved to basically their genitals to look like males' genitals. Anyways, all that to say, <laughs> I think my favorite puppet from the show is this cute little crocheted hyena with a ginormous clitoris <laughs> poking out of it. It's just so shocking and just just so confusing to look at because it's just gross and cute. And that's my favorite thing about the show is when we find really cute stuff and then just flip it around on you and be like, look at how gross this is.
0: Yeah, that is a great thing.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm sure animals with giant genitals are top contenders, but if you had to pick one of the creatures that you covered this season, what animal would you be? Oh,
0: <laughs> that's a really interesting yeah. lead-in. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd use it. <laughs> that's great. And we want the truth, right? Like, we're like like if you were like checking out our star sign, we'd be trying to get our star sign to the closest thing.
1: Yeah, okay. I, I want the want astrological equivalent of the animal. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, an octopus.
4: Doesn't really matter the species, but they're so cool. And they can regrow their arms. I've dislocated my shoulder many times <laughs> in my life. This so is just I, can, I can really relate convenient. to like, yeah. the octopus. Yeah, it's great. You know, um, they're really smart. And I just love, I
0: love octopus. That's a good pick. I'm thinking I'd be a decorator crab. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. I like that. I love, I love dressing up nice. I like looking cool. I love staying safe, keeping <laughs> hidden when I need to be. And yeah, sometimes I'll attach dangerous things to my, myself, like knives, uh, just to <laughs> walk around and keep safe. You know, Smart. like, yeah. So, yeah, I think, yeah, decorator crab for sure. I love, yeah, I love fashion. I love, I love wearing things that make me feel confident and safe, like the decorator crab.
1: The Loop is a weekly podcast from CBC Edmonton. And our team this week is Tahra Fruzan, Leslie Goldstone, Corey Haberstock, and James Evans. Our theme music is Change Your Mind by Edmonton musician John Common. And I'm Claire Bonneman. Thank you so much for listening. There's always
2: so much more to know. Get into the loop with us every Friday, or if you want to get in touch, we have an email: the at cbc.ca. Use the hashtag #theLoopCBC on social media, or reach out to us. And of course, follow the show on CBC Listen or your favorite podcasting app.
1: Banana.
2: <laughs> I'll just thing. sing it every
1: time. Oh, I'll do the percussion.
2: Ready? Oh, yeah. Okay. Banana. <laughs>